that I think we need to uh, look in and we talk <laughs> about our stomachs and our gut, get that gut feel. Yeah. We need to consume a lot of information, fine, and then go within and say what resonates, what's right. And then we try things and see, was I right? And then we are course correcting and editing and auditing along the way as we, um, you know, you hear businesses talk about pivoting. Um, we are our own business. We're trying to, you know, run our machines well. And so we have a vessel to bring our spirit into the world. And we need to make sure that the vessel is optimized and the, there's not a, um, a manual for an optimized vessel for each of us. Cause unfortunately, like we're, our vessels are like the difference between a, like an owner's manual in each car brand of a model. There's no owner manual for this vessel. Like it just doesn't exist. There's a series of like loose papers that if you're really, you're great, you can assemble all those loose papers and create an owner's manual for your vessel. Um, but that takes work and time and you have to go, oh, this one's wrong. And you take page six out, you put a new page six in, you try that page six out and you go, okay, this page six is right for this time in my life. And then you end up with, by the time you're about to go in your box, you've assembled your manual and your manual is done. And you're like, okay, I'm done. Off to your next chapter. But it's yeah. a lifetime's work to work on your manual. Yes. And, and you know, your vessel is in the best state when you work on your manual, as opposed to uh, deciding that, quite frankly, that overwhelming task of working on your manual, you just can't go there, which yeah. is something that a lot of people get to. Yeah. Hello everyone, and welcome to the Eat Real to Heal podcast. I am your host, Nicolette Richet. And on today's show, we have the wonderful, the kind, the intelligent, smart, beautiful, just am so in love with this human being, this fellow human being on the planet, Jason Antony. Now, Jason Antony, you might know him as the co-owner of Meat Vegan Restaurants in Vancouver that he started with his wife, Linda, and his friend, Evo. Now, their mission is to help transition the mainstream to eating more plant-based vegan foods in a friendly, accepting, and engaging venue. And if you've ever been to any of his restaurants, you know that the food is delicious. They've spent the last 20 years in Vancouver owning and operating a total of eight restaurants and organic grocery stores throughout the city. Now, Jason was one of the first doing this in Vancouver, which is incredible because for most of us, we've seen the organic vegan trend rise over the last five to 10 years, but he was really there at the forefront leading that charge. Jason is also the founder of Vegan Supply and their newest project, Friend and Foe, that is moving beyond the restaurant and food world into looking at all the different products that your body touches on a day-to-day -day basis to ensure that they come from beautiful organic vegan sources. Now on today's show, we are going to be chatting about the fact that Jason wasn't always a healthy guru that you might see him as now. He was diagnosed at 25 with Crohn's disease. And if many of you know about Crohn's disease, it is a debilitating gastrointestinal disease 
that you end up getting put on lots of medications. And then after it's really just goes downhill after that, it can result in having your bowel resected and many other operations. And it's very much an uncomfortable illness to live with. But, you know, like most people who end up finding a solution to their condition, to their illness, you know, it was probably because they read a book or watched a documentary or somebody suggested something to them. And for Jason, he ended up, it was a GI doctor that told him that he was going to have to live with this illness for the rest of his life. But that was something he wasn't willing to accept. And so in this podcast, we're going to be taking you through the uh, trials and tribulations, the twists and turns of literally watching Jason go through what it was like to be diagnosed and then reverse his disease with food. Reversing Crohn's disease with food is really important. So if you know of anybody else out there that has Crohn's disease or gastrointestinal disorder or any kind of bowel, gut, intestinal problems, please share this podcast with them because A, it could save their life. B, it could help them get off their medications. C, they can find another way to, to, to not have to live with this illness for the rest of their life. So listen to Jason's story. We dive, dive into such so much more than even what I've suggested here. So you want to listen to this podcast from beginning to end, because in the end, you actually discover that eating food is truly a spiritual experience. Before we dive into the show with Jason, I want to share with you that we just launched our third, fourth cohort of the Nutrition and Detox Coaching Certification Program. This is where I teach you how to be a chronic disease reversal coach using nutritional medicine, using food as medicine first. And on top of that, we're also training 1,200 restaurants this year on training all of their chefs so they can also learn the art and science of preparing food that heals instead of making food that harms. Unfortunately, so many chefs, just like so many physicians, are not taught about food as medicine. And so they don't know. They're out there preparing the foods that they think you want to eat, the foods that are rich in flavors that taste amazing on your palate. But then by the time they hit the gut, they're doing more harm than they are good. So we're going to be training 1200 restaurants around North America on how to add menu items to their existing menu. So they, so they don't have to redo their whole entire menu, but all they need to do is add menu items that are going to be available for anyone out there who wants to use food as medicine to heal themselves from any type of chronic degenerative disease. So if you know a chef out there or a restaurant owner, please tell them to head over to Green Mo University. That's Green Mustache University at greenmustache.com. And there we have all of our courses listed, including the Nutrition and Detox Coaching Program and the Chef Training Program. So please forward them their links, forward them this podcast, and I hope to see you in our courses soon. See you at the end of the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Eat Real to Heal podcast. I'm super excited to have Jason Anthony on our show. Jason, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to this. 
Yeah, I'm looking forward to it too, because we got to spend, we spent, I think, almost a couple hours chatting um, a couple weeks ago and just getting to know each other better because we've been in the same space of providing vegan meals um, in the food industry to, you know, thousands of people for a long time. I've been following the work that you've been doing, but it's the first time um, we've actually been able to sit down and get to know each other, which has been a delight for me, a true yeah. delight. It was great. That 15 minute call uh, ended in two hours later, pretty, uh, the time zipped away. It was great. It did. It did. Yeah. And we have definitely lots more in store because we're going to start collaborating on some good stuff to just do even more good work in the world. So I am excited for that too. But for today, you have an incredible story to share, and I can't wait for you to be able to share that with our audience because there's so much more to you as there is for every human, but so much more to you than just what people might see when they walk into your restaurants. So you have several restaurants. Can you tell us about that first? Uh, you bet. Yeah. So right now we have a restaurant group called uh, uh, basically Meat Restaurants. We have our first location that was Meat on Main, Main and 27th in Vancouver. We have our second location, Meat in Gastown, uh, in Gastown and we have Meat in Yaletown. Uh, so yeah, those are the three restaurants that we run. Yaletown opened up a couple of years ago, two or three years ago, just before the pandemic, actually not longer now, but yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's the restaurants that we have. Uh, predating that restaurant in Vancouver, yes. we had Deviate, uh, which was our first restaurant that we opened in 1994. <laughs> I know we were talking about that. And I was like, what was I doing in 1994? And I was like, oh, right. I was just like in my gap year after graduating from high school and had not ventured into this world just yet. No. So yeah, yeah, Deviate was uh, yeah great restaurant uh, down on the Yaletown side of Davie Street. There's a park there now. Uh, but what was interesting about Deviate, it was a late night restaurant. Uh, we were open during the day, but uh, yeah, we had DJs and live bands and poetry readings. And all the, it, was, it was an amazing artistic space. The front of the building was painted different uh, every month uh, with, uh, wow. graffiti, with the graffiti community. Um, and we had vegan and vegetarian items on our menu back then. And it was quite, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was a unique space. It was a, it was a special space, uh, but uh, yeah, it was a chapter as well. And tell us about what your, like, who were your customers at that time uh, in 1994 with Deviate? Um, I, I think, you know, I would describe us as the alt thing. Like it was an alt crowd kind of thing. Mm -hmm. People who uh, just didn't want to go to Cactus Club, Earl's Milestones and all the conventional uh, franchise establishments. Yeah. And so we had that, uh, you know, uh, we had that Amsterdam feel to us. Like it was kind of a very European feel in the space outside the front of the building was changing every month, but inside the art was changing every month. We had artists uh, come in and do their own shows. Uh, we had, uh, you know, collaborative shows where you'd have tons of different artists working on a theme. And uh, the space was, was really dynamic in a lot of different mm -hmm. ways. The staff was eclectic. The menu was eclectic. Um, and, uh, it was just, it was, it was a special space for the time. There's only a couple of spaces like it. Yeah. Um, but, uh, it was fun. It was, a, it was a really fun place to be, uh, be a part of. It was great. Yeah. It almost feels like the world needs a place like deviate once again, like once the world can open up and the COVID pandemic is behind us and, you know, a place where we can gather and collaborate and bring art back in together and, you know, really just, um, it almost sounds like a healing place actually. 
um, on multiple levels, not just through food, but through community um, gathering collaboration. Yeah, I would say that it was healing for, there's a lot of healing that went on there, but I'll remind you it was open till four in the morning. Oh, right. So sure. <laughs> it, it was a bit of a party place too. So uh, I, I think what it was, is it was, a, it was a very artistic social space. Yeah. And so in that way, it was definitely nurturing and healing, but people were drinking really late and hanging out and, and, and I'm sure they were going out after that. So right. it, uh, it was, it was a different scene and we were open during the day and we had as I said, we had a lot of raw vegan items then. So we did have nurturing food, yeah. but we also had food that had the sugar, salt and fat in it. Like yeah. it was just, it was a mix of all of it is what it was. Right. Right. And then, um, after that, what happened? You had another place that, um, did you create it or did you shift and work there? Remind uh, me about Anthony and Fun. Okay. So uh, I think one thing that's important about deviate is that we had a fire there. I don't know if you ever, if I, I told you no. that in the story. So this is, you know, uh, this is, was very kind of uh, very difficult time is that we had a fire while we were open on a Sunday night. Mm -hmm. I had a customer call me and say, Hey, your business is on fire. Um, so uh, yeah, of course I didn't believe them. I thought they were joking. Um, and I said, like, how come my staff aren't calling me? And they're like, they're busy trying to help. Like we had a busy, busy restaurant. And it was like maybe six or seven o'clock at night at the dinner rush. Um, so it was, uh, it was pretty full on trying to really understand and process that it, it lasted a long time. I went into a bit of a depression afterwards and because um, it was such a big part of who mm. well, my identity was. And so that was challenging for some time. Uh, the city ended up building a park where we, where that business was. Um, and I went through doing a few different things. I worked for an organization called Green Table. It was a nonprofit helping greening mm -hmm. restaurants. Yeah. Um, that's something I did for a period of time. And then there was a gentleman who had a grocery store that was struggling uh, in Surrey. And um, I ended up coming in. He was going to get out of the business. He was actually dealing with an illness. He was dealing with cancer. Mm. Um, and I came in and at the time and for some time uh, before that time, uh, I was already looking at, um, you know, the foods I ate, the choices I made because I had already transitioned to veganism. Um, and so I, uh, I just made an offer on the business. We took it over and changed their primarily produce business, small produce business um, into an organic store. And so wow. we just shifted the market. We turned it into Antony and Sons. And Antony and Sons was this place that became this haven. Really, it was all about foods to support healing. Because I had went through my Crohn's journey. I probably yeah. was diagnosed. Yeah, I was probably diagnosed in about 1995, something like that. We had opened up Deviate in 94. Um, and, you know, around 1995, I was diagnosed with Crohn's. And so I had went through like, uh, quite the journey in trying to understand Crohn's. And I always talk about um, people figuring out their, their personal food puzzle. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't think there's a, like a, a single solution that's going to work for everybody. I really feel strongly that um, we need to take the time to really understand ourselves as people, but also understand what works in our bodies at that stage in our life. Because it's not like, even, even with us as individuals, at different times in our life, different things, from my perspective, different mm -hmm. foods, different... Um, we just need different things to nurture ourselves. Yeah. And so I, um, and this is what I was talking about, uh, deviate. It was for me, 
it was very fun, but it was also destructive because mm-hmm. I had, I, I wasn't sleeping the way I should have been sleeping. I wasn't eating the way I needed to eat. I wasn't taking care of my person and I wasn't were taking you, care. Were you Sorry, drinking a lot at that time too? Because I know that when you're in the, you know, restaurant world with a lot of alcohol, I mean, there's a lot of alcohol consumption. Yeah. Like I wasn't drinking a lot compared to the people who drank a lot, but I was right. certainly drinking a lot. Yeah. And not um, like, coupled with not sleeping well. I mean, those are two recipes for destruction yeah, sh- in the body for sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. So like my immune system was compromised and, and I, I'm sure things got, got a hold of me. And, and, and the biggest issue was that I, I, I wasn't a conscious eater at all. Like I just wasn't a, I, I, you know, I would have uh, desires and I would satiate them. So it's like, mm-hmm. it didn't really, I wasn't uh, heading down a path that, uh, like I, I wasn't really dealing with uh, what I needed to be dealing with. And I didn't, I wasn't introspective enough in that way. Um, very, you know, entrepreneurial from a very young age. And I was thinking about all these things I wanted to do, mm-hmm. but I wasn't thinking about me. I neglected me. Um, and it was, uh, it was a time where I was forced to um, step back and really think a little bit more about how I was treating this vessel. Yeah. Um, and I neglected the vessel for too long. And how old were you at this time when you got diagnosed? Uh, 25, maybe. Something like yeah. That. And that's a really hard time to get diagnosed with something like Crohn's disease, because that's when you're, you know, you're out and about and busy and you're just making things happen and you're with your friends a lot. And then all of a sudden to have Crohn's disease and, and prior to that diagnosis, like, were you aware that you had symptoms? Cause Crohn's doesn't just come on overnight. There's usually a lot of symptoms leading up. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, I, I remember as a kid, like a very, very young kid, the amount of candy that I would eat, like I just eat junk food nonstop. Like I just, mm-hmm. I just did. And I, I, the, the funny thing is, is my mom was a yoga instructor when I was born. So what? she was really into, so there, like we had sprouts growing, like my mom was yeah. like a, a hippie at the time. So like we had all the natural elements but we also had, I think, the first McDonald's in Canada, maybe like five blocks from where I lived when I was born. Right. Um, and so we, my, like my, like the, the juxtaposition is best described is my mom was a, a Reiki practitioner and a yoga instructor, and my dad worked at the Globe and Mail. So if you could, <laughs> if you could imagine, those are like those are some of the influences that I had growing up, and as a result. I kind of took on sort of both parts of those things. But also, I mean, as a mother of three kids and, you know, you have children as well, that I know it it doesn't matter how conscious you are about food and growing sprouts and doing all of that and feeding, like making baby food for your babies. When they become teenagers and they're out there, like, you know, which starts like, you know, they start working at pretty young ages, getting money, right? So then all of a sudden they are like, if it's $5 turns into $100 turns, and a lot of that gets spent on eating a crap load of junk food in their teens. And so I have three teens, like one who's about to be a teenager, you know, so three teenagers in the house that it's like, I cannot even keep up with them with the amount of crap that they are bringing into the house despite the fact that they grew up eating like the cleanest of the cleanest so but that's also this beautiful cycle and wave that I think you know humans go through so now they're recognizing the importance of food which they kind of go to it you know when they when their immune system starts crashing and they start not feeling well but then the minute they're better they're like back with their friends eating it shit <laughs> basically yeah. and so yeah, but I, I, you the, cycle back 
It, no, it's just interesting because it reminds me back to the time where growing up, it was a treat for us to have TV dinners and all these yeah. things that are like, it's amazing the poor quality food. We thought it was a treat. It was actually yeah. a special thing. Yeah, me too. Wow. Yeah, Chef Boyardee. I remember the first time, like my mom never bought it, but a kid in school had it. And I was like, oh my God, that smell, like I want it, I want it. And I remember craving Chef Boyardee, never allowed to have it. And I only had prep dinner the first time when I was 29 years old, first time ever. And yeah. going to McDonald's was like a once in a year thing. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas for now, it's almost a daily thing for a lot of kids. Yeah. So if you layer on those food choices with lifestyle decisions that you know, I think lead to compromise our immune systems, uh, yeah. they're, they're compromised. And so to get back to it, I guess, um, for me, when I started to, as I said, look at the vessel, understand where I was at, there was a problem, and I didn't know how to fix it. I went mm -hmm. to, I went to the conventional medical system, and the GIs at the time said, you're going to be sick forever. And the foods you eat don't matter. That was a, that I was told that by a series of doctors, not just yeah. one. I was, I, I remember going to the first doctor being told that, and I was like, oh, I got to get a second opinion. And they said the same thing. So I was mm -hmm. like, it doesn't resonate with me. This, this isn't right. And so I went on a journey to try and figure out how to heal um, myself to, to feel better. Um, and I knew uh, even at that time, I knew remission was possible because people would find themselves in remission. I just needed to figure out the path. And so I, that was when my exploration started. I, um, I don't know if you've heard of Dr. Elaine Gottschall. Uh, she, uh, she wrote a book called Breaking the Vicious Cycle. Mm. And it really is about breaking the cycle of inflammation. And that was again, 20 some, some odd years ago. And um, it was a book that taught me the power of food um, as far as how it could play a role in healing my body. The diet wasn't sustainable for me at the time. You described mm -hmm. it very well as 25 years old. Mm -hmm. And it was too restrictive for the lifestyle that I wanted to lead versus the compromises I wanted to make. Yeah. Um, but I was on that diet for some time and I did feel better. And I went through a series of different things that made me feel better, but it only lasted so long. And I would mm -hmm. either fall off the diet. Um, and then I became a, a vegetarian. And, um, and when I became a vegetarian, I, I used it as, a, it was a healing modality. Um, I wasn't, uh, you know, I always had a, a place in my heart for animals. Um, I, it was very typical, the typical thing where I would say, I've always would have said since I was a young child that I loved animals, but I would eat them. Mm -hmm. uh, so I just, there was a big disconnect. And I would say as a vegetarian, there was less of a disconnect, but it wasn't the same thing until uh, a friend of mine was diagnosed with skin cancer about 18 years ago and he had a very progressive doctor um, and his doctor recommended to him that he consider a plant-based diet which I'd love to uh, hear who that doctor was 18 yeah years. I never questioned it at the time but he I was vegetarian and I had already been exposed to veganism um, uh, because as again we sold vegan products at our restaurant in 1994. So, you know, come uh, years later, I had already like kind of talked to vegans and understood a little bit more about it. Um, I decided to go on that journey with him. And, uh, and I ended up, uh, unlike when I was vegetarian, I ended up consuming a lot of the documentaries of the time. Mm -hmm. And I, as I learned more about it, I understood, uh, you know, the challenges of the industrialized animal agriculture system. And I 
started to uh, reframe my relationship with, with the food that I ate and understand that I could be part of the solution. And I, I chose veganism, not just as a healing modality, but more so as a way to interact differently with the world mm. and to be part of a solution. Um, and so I think that was kind of my arc of coming through all these different things that kind of didn't work. Like I remember while I was vegetarian and being like, I would eat pizza slices cause I could, and I would eat ice cream cause I could. And I don't know if you, uh, for, like, if, I'm sure you probably met tons of people with Crohn's, but mm -hmm. I remember not being able to sleep because I was in so much pain yeah. and it just was a cycle that I got, I got used to pay. It was pain management. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so I, it just became part of my norm. I would just deal with pain. And when it hit a threshold that it was too much, I just wouldn't eat. Yeah. And I think it's a really common thing for people. It is. Uh, yes. Like you just, they get really thin and they just don't eat very much because they just don't feel good often. Yeah. And I didn't really focus on healing. Actually, there's one key piece. One of the things that coincided with my transition from vegetarianism to veganism, which I actually think is super important in the context for your audience, is water fasting. Mm. Because at the time, I think at the time, my friend um, you know, came down with this diagnosis. I was, as I mentioned, I was in pain on, on a regular basis. And I was saying this vegetarian isn't working for me the way I want it to. And I started to really consume information on how to heal the body and how to heal the gut and how to actually do that. And I came to the concept of digestive rest. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I was exploring at the time, in, again, this is, you know, whatever it is, 20 some odd years ago, I was exploring digestive rest, I was exploring uh, water fasting, intermittent fasting, and I, I really felt that in my particular case, that water fasting, as difficult as it might be, mm -hmm. was going to be the, my, um, like, everybody considers a lot of these things extreme. And, and um, like, a colostomy was not something that was extreme to me. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, and, and considering, I think my great grandfather might have been the first person in Canada to have a colostomy. So, wow. like... That, that's one of those like, hey, this is this is the badge that I have. And I was like, I don't want to go down that path. So I decided to really look into possibility and water fasting came up as something that resonated with me. Um, yeah. I, I saw the risks um, that uh, that were there and um, there was possibly supervised water fasting centers um, yeah. around. But I felt that water fasting can be managed by the individual in certain circumstances if they met certain criteria and if you weren't pushing it too hard for too long and you were and watching you, yourself and you did it yourself i did it myself yeah and yeah, i was watching okay. my symptoms and i you know yeah. I, I i i again i people have been fasting for thousands of years thousands so, yeah so i don't want to like I, I don't like there's a lot like i don't want to say there's not risk with fasting because there's risk yeah. with everything there's risk with walking down the street and yeah. i don't downplay the risks of fasting but I also don't want people to not explore this and to see if it's right for them and if it resonates. Because yeah. when, 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 um, when you discover a healing path that is right for you, you really need to dive into it. And for me, I believe digestive rest is probably, given the society we live in and the problems we face, yeah. I think fasting is probably one of the best ways to stop um, the cycle of inflammation yeah. and begin and building a new like if you want to build a new person you fast yes 
Yeah. And that's really what it comes down to. If you, if you want to build a new person, if the person, if the human, if the vessel is damaged, I, I think if you want to do it fast, no pun intended, but you need mm -hmm. to fast. If you really want to address it fast, there are ways to do it um, in a softer way over time, but I actually, I think the success rate is lower. Yeah. And yeah, I just got to jump in because there's so many beautiful things here that you said. And actually I was just thinking like, okay, you know what, Jason, you're going to write a book because <laughs> there are like, you know, even just a book on quotes, we could do that right now, but let me just go back. Cause there's a few <laughs> really important pieces that I don't want to, um, um, uh, go over too quickly. So one thing that you said, which I really, really love this is when you got diagnosed with Crohn's and you're a 25 year old, like really still a kid, right? You're a 25 year old kid on the planet. Um, even though we call them adults, but youth is a definition that, you know, so you said, I knew remission was possible. And I think this is the key, key piece that for anybody who gets diagnosed with something is that that is the first thing that you, you need to believe is that remission is possible because it is. Because if you show me any chronic disease out there, any chronic disease out there, I can show you somebody who has successfully reversed it through yeah. multiple different ways. And, yeah. but that, and I'm talking about not with surgery, not with medication, literally through other ways natural ways, healthier ways that don't, you know, have all of these side effects. There's another thing that you said, which is really key as well. Um, it's about reframing your relationship with food, right? Because, and when you said your doctor told you that your Crohn's disease had nothing to do with your diet, I have clients today in 2022 that get told the same thing by their doctors. Yeah. And, and there's no need for that when we have thousands and thousands and thousands of studies that show that the opposite is true. So your diet and your disease are completely related. Now there's another beautiful thing that you said here as well, is you said, um, there is risk to everything. And this is so true. But the things that popped up for me on that is, you know, there is a risk to being vegan, if you're just going to consume, like completely 100% processed vegan products all the time, there's a risk to being vegetarian, if you're going to be do it the way that Matthew McConaughey did it when he was like an 18 year old, where all he did was eat breakfast, lunch and dinner, iceberg lettuce and ketchup, true story for yeah. a year, for right? Sure. There's a risk, you're going to become nutrient deficient. And then the last thing that you said that I really just want people to hang on to is that you talked about rebuilding your human body. And that that is so powerful. And I think a lot of people, because we, you know, we're not taught science and biology and chemistry in the context of the power of our human body to be recreated, right? We're talking about it when we talk about trees and grass and animals, but this is what we need to be teaching in school. And it's that your ability as a human being to be able to rebuild your body. And I love that. So this, and then the last thing, there was five points actually, is mm -hmm. this digestive rest piece which is so critical for everyone who is listening to this, that you might think that fasting is a new trend, but digestive rest, fasting, AKA fasting has been around forever. And I love that, that calling it digestive rest is such a beautiful thing because we rest ourselves every night for hopefully eight hours. And we also need to rest our digestion, especially in a society that over consumes, we over consume everything, especially food. Yeah, yeah. we need to, we need to rest our second brain. Yes. Is really what it, you know yeah. what I mean, or our Beautiful. first brain, depending on what you think. But yeah, um, yeah like it, it needs to, like we all need downtime, and so yeah, it's super important. That's uh, 
Yeah. These are, these are gems already. We can end the podcast right now and be like, okay, everyone, as you were, because if people just implemented these five things that you just said, like the world would be a different place. So I have to ask you, so when, because this is quite profound, what you're saying you did at this time, the fact that you knew remission was possible. And do you, would, do you think that has to do with the way you were brought up with your mom, that you were more exposed to this at that point? being 25 or where did this innate knowledge come from? Is this just something you knew inside yourself? Had you, had you watched some documentaries? Was it really triggered by the documentaries? I'm really curious about this side of yourself because most yeah. people never make these realizations in their entire lifetime. Yeah. So whew, I, I, I guess it's really hard to pinpoint it right now. I give you some things that I think led to it is I think I grew up on I grew up on after school specials and the food pyramid and believing everything I was told. Mm. You know, I thought that like if I was able to purchase certain foods at the store that they were good for me because they wouldn't be allowed mm. otherwise. Like I just assumed that I was being takered, uh, taken care of and nurtured by the system. Right. right. And and so when I started to discover that it wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. Um, I think that experience with the GI, when the GI said, there's nothing you can do, mm-hmm. that that put me back in my seat where I said, this doesn't feel right. Like it just doesn't feel right that the food that I eat doesn't have any, have any impact on my digestive system. And I'm just dealing with a genetic uh, disorder that it's kind of, uh, it's, it's kind of my, uh, what I'm gonna be faced with the rest of my life. And so, while I saw it, that as possibility, sure, I still see that as a possibility. I didn't see that as the only way. Um, and so I wanted to delve into it a little bit more. And once I started to delve into it and do the research, I started to find out that other people had had success uh, um, mm-hmm. doing a range of different things. And so it's not like every time somebody took this action, they had this result. So it wasn't so scientific that it would it would work for all people yeah and that's when I started to get this sense of this personal food puzzle that I have to figure out what's right for me mm-hmm. and I think that's the piece that I think is is the most important thing when I'm ever giving advice to people is that um, we're living at a time right now where people tend to discount what people have to say about a lot of different things because they don't like what they say about a certain thing I don't like what you say about topic A, so I'm not going to listen to topic B, C, D, and E. And unfortunately, we need to listen to all of it about most people, and we need to extract the gems from everybody. Like we're we're kind of like miners, yeah. and uh, we need to extract um, and and give value to everybody. And people take from each other what they wish to um, use at that time in their lives. And 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 from me, what I found was I started to do the exploration. And what happened was I gained this, and this is going to be terrible, but I gained this distrust for the medical system and their myopic view of healing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so once you start down that path, it's a rabbit hole, right? You go, oh, what else should I question? The food pyramid might not be right. And it kind of set on this thing and not of like absolute distrust, but questioning. And once you start to question it, really, that's when you get empowered. Like you have to question. Um, 
you know, your most loved and trusted people, they might believe something in, in, uh, in full sincerity that they tell you, and they just could be wrong for you. Mm-hmm. And so it's important for us to always delve in. And this is the other thing is that what's right for you at one point in your life might not be right for you at another point in your life. Yeah. When your body's in fight and flight, what you need is really different than when your body's uh, at rest and mm-hmm. maybe a little more sedentary. And so um, that discovery and that constant exploration is something that uh, I think is a really important point for all of us. The other thing, though, that is kind of the opposite of that, one of the biggest things that was my transition was I couldn't live my illness anymore. Mm-hmm. For the first few years, I lived and I had this identity of I am sick, I have Crohn's. And I was like, I was going to choose health instead of choosing illness. And I think when you layer on all those different approaches, I started working towards health and I found the path towards health. Um, but for many, many years, I, 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 I spent too much of my energy with that, that illness identity and it always acted as a limiter to me. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that's where, uh, you know, you, can't, you just can't give your energy that way, in my opinion. I think you really need to focus on where you wanna be, where you wanna go and how you're gonna get there instead of keeping yourself trapped. And I was trapped for a while. Yeah, that's that's a huge realization as well. And I can't even imagine, um, you know, what that must have been like for you. I can imagine it for my clients that are like in their 40s and 50s. You know, there's a little bit more groundedness in their thinking, but it sounds like you already had that then at that age, which is, you know, I'm like, this part is just blowing my mind because of the fact that most of my clients that I see when we go back through their health history, their symptoms started when they were young, in in their teens, in their 20s, but they just ignored it. You know, they kept shooting the messenger. So taking the pain pills, like you talked about, you know, you were managing pain on, on probably a daily basis. But, you know, they were just shooting the messengers that were coming. And then it's when they hit their rock bottom, you know, in their, you know, 30s and 40s, um, that, that that's when they start to start the questioning process. So yeah, this is, this is incredible. And I wish it was something, you know, how do we teach this? That's what I'm mining for in you. It's like, how could we teach this to young kids so that they don't wait until their fifties or forties before they start taking this quality of action. But I guess it's a journey for everybody. And your journey just started a little bit earlier. Well, yeah, I I think it's, it's, there's two things that come from me for this. One is that, uh, you know, I remember as a very young child, having my mat that I would lie down on that I had this like magical connection to. Mm -hmm. And if I had a stomach ache, I would lie down on there and I would feel better after lying down on uh, on this mat. And um, so I must've had like, (laughs) I must've had a lot of digestive challenges at a younger age and just found management tools. They weren't anywhere near as bad as I experienced. Like it wasn't like pain that would keep me up at night and where I had to have a shower because it was so bad. I just had to do something to distract myself from the pain, which it was when I was older. Um, But it was definitely stomach discomfort. I definitely Mm -hmm. had that growing up all the way through. So talking about not paying attention to the messages, that was definitely the case. So anyway. Yeah. And I mean, you're a kid at that time too. So of course that makes sense. Like, you know, your resource, you you know, your pool of resources tends to be a little bit smaller at that point. Um, And 
because we know, like you talked about our second brain or first brain being our gut, and uh, we know that gut brain axis connection. So I just want to talk about your mental health at that time. What, what was that like? Did you notice something was, you know, mental health being affected or were you running on adrenaline at that time? Cause here you are running deviate and, you know, lots of things going on. What was that like? Um, well, I, I would say that like, I live in, I, I've lived and part of one of my challenges, I live in my head all the time. Mm. Um, and I do that too much. And I did that then at the time as well. So it's not like that was uh, something that was unique for me. So I, I don't know, like, I think I, uh, I don't remember things being like they were challenging at that stage, but things were things are always challenging. When you're mm -hmm. a young adult, life's hard. You're learning about all these uh, these new things. And as you grow up and you deal with uh, life's twists and turns, you're always being challenged. I don't remember being less equipped or more equipped at the time. Um, like I, I just remember there being it was more cyclical than anything else. Is that mm -hmm. sometimes I felt equipped and sometimes I didn't. That's probably the best way as far as recollection of the situation. Right, right. Yeah. So let's dive into now you you've gone down the path of being vegetarian and you know some of it worked, some of it didn't and then you switch you become vegan and then you move into the water fasting and how long did you do that for and and tell me tell us about the experience <coughs> around that and then then we're going to move forward because now you're virtually living symptom free. Correct. So um, basically, uh, so vegetarian, water fast, then vegan. That's the cycle. Okay. And okay. so it was during this water fast, and you know, it was ten day water fast. So it was a for my first water fast. That was a long time. That's a long time. Um, and uh, you know, anybody who's ever researched water fasting, you go through a lot. Like I had a lot of healing to do. I had a lot of scar tissue I had to deal with, and. Um, and so I, like, I probably, like, if at that time I went longer, I think I would have healed more. Um, but it definitely felt like I had a lot of side effects as far as, like, I remember certainly um, having the equivalent of flu-like symptoms where you're, you know, not quite hallucinating, but very airy, mm -hmm. like super airy during the time. And uh, I, had, I had a lot of headaches and uh, yeah, I just went through a lot of different symptoms. Um, and I also like, I'm not a runner. I know, I know you're, a, you're an endurance athlete, I think. Right. So I haven't experienced this, um, runner's high and, yeah. um, that runners seem to get, I probably had it through snowboarding and other things, some of it, but the clarity that I experienced mm -hmm. after coming through this near the end of the fast, which is, you know, it's so funny. I started to experience this fasting euphoria and I was like okay I'm done <laughs> but yeah, it was it was it was magical it was really special to um see the world from that perspective um and uh yeah it was it was a it was a very heightened awareness phase of the experience and um it gave me a respect for fasting um which is you know just li listening to myself talk about it this way it's surprising that i don't fast annually uh it's right. like it's it's amazing like <laughs> it's amazing that i don't do that because i know that's I, i'm not saying a 10-day water fast is necessary every year yeah. but there's probably something to um a, a, like a cyclical water fast i think i gotta yeah. I, I think this is my message to re-explore where water fasting would fit into my day-to-day -day life especially as i get yeah. older yeah um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, no, I, and, and I also, I, 
completely understand like you know there's a therapy I teach and sometimes I wonder I'm like why am I not doing it all the time (laughs) because I feel so amazing I have that mental clarity that is like outstanding I have unlimited energy you know when I do that like the energy you could I couldn't imagine even having more energy than that ever um and I wouldn't even need it I wouldn't even know what to do with it and so but we also know that as humans we like to avoid pain we like to avoid discomfort and so once you've done something like that once like it is a commitment to do that right it's it's a lifestyle change even if it's only for 10 days and so then we naturally are more inclined to you know avoid doing things like that again as opposed to when you're religious and you have an entire community you know, of accountability partners out there once a year at Easter, um, you know, watching you or, you know, or at Christmas, you know, certain religions fast at Christmas or over the holiday, I shouldn't call it Christmas, it's over the holidays. Um, And so it's just naturally built into a way of life. And unless you're following something like that, you, you have to do it on your own. And that's hard to do. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's funny, like, you know, it's, it's funny how you described fasting as hard. It's not um, like fasting creates a lot of ease. Like you don't have to think about like the amount of time and energy you think about what you're going to eat, preparing the food, eating the food, cleaning up from the food. It takes up a massive amount of time. It's actually way easier to not eat. Yeah. Where it becomes challenging is our menstrual, our constitution. Like, like we think it's burdensome to not eat. Yeah. Um, it's kind of, it's kind of like we think it's burdensome to become vegan. It's actually burdensome to not become vegan. Like when you right. eat better, it frees you. It actually, it you know, and it, and uh, you, you feel better. And, and fasting is very similar to that. It's just, you know, our relationship with food and those, uh, those cues of us wanting to eat and how we answer back to those desires it's all, it's a mental game. It's really a mental game. And that's what I mean. I don't mean the fasting itself, that process of the, but it's setting up mentally for it. It's like getting prepared to be like, okay, I'm going to commit to these 10 days. And it is that mental game to be like, because I know for myself, like when I stopped drinking a couple of years ago, I wasn't a big drinker, but I decided to try one year, no beer and just to see. So, and I said, well, I'll just do it for 30 days. It turned into two years. And, um, but it was like just setting up for that. And then also it was in the moment of the, you know, alcohol being presented in like a social situation, it took energy, mental energy to be like, actually, no, I'm not drinking. So it's more the setting up for it than anything else. I think it's more that hump you got to get over. And that in itself too, also takes, it takes courage. It takes energy. It takes, you know, preparation, you know, telling other people, like there's a lot involved in getting ready to do something. And I think that's what I meant more than actually doing the fast itself. Okay, so here's my gem that I extracted from this is that the mental fitness. Yes. That like we work, we work a lot of muscles, but the mental fitness, like working that ability to not get, not to listen to those yeah. um, requests for those things that don't nurture, that, that's a muscle we probably need to work on on a more regular basis. So yeah. um, uh, we, we don't, uh, yeah, it's more, uh, we're, I don't want to say we're more in control because it's kind of like we're more doing what we're supposed to be doing. We're more yeah. in touch, less in control, more in touch, like is yes. probably where we want to wanna be. Yeah. And, um, and I think we need to do, uh, figure out what type of exercises will strengthen that part of our constitution. 
Um, and uh, I'd be curious to figure out, I, obviously now I have to spend some time to try and figure out what that means and yeah. understand that a little bit, but I love it. I think it's great. So yeah. Yeah. No, this in itself opens up a whole nother podcast for you and I to go over. It's that mental yeah. fitness, you know, and how we do that, especially in a world of instant gratification, like, you know, you have food 24 seven, you never even have to go look for it or hunt for it or anything. And you know, why, you know, why would you put yourself in a situation of, you know, almost depriving yourself of food or, or meat or dairy or anything like that? Like, you know, it's, it's quite remarkable. So you had mentioned to me when we met previously that um, Earthlings, you had watched Earthlings. Yeah. So, okay. So uh, imagine me, I've been vegan for, I don't know how long, like, uh, so I'm running Antony and Sons. My guess is I'm vegan for call it 10 years or something like that. Um, And I had been exposed that the movie Earthlings was around, but um, it didn't really mean much to me. I didn't need to see more slaughterhouse footage. I'd already seen it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like, I was convinced, like I didn't need to, to see anymore. And quite frankly, those movies are quite disturbing like this mm-hmm. to see them. So I didn't really want to bring that in. I didn't want to consume more of that. Um, at least so I thought at the time. Um, and then I had just been, you know, the vegan community really, certainly uses as a tool to educate people Um, and I think it's it's great Um, and at the time my partner wasn't vegan Um, and uh, you know you know again we were together for probably 10 years um, with everybody else in the family eating meat and um, and so I said okay like I'll try it I want to see this documentary and so we sat down together as a couple and we decided to watch Earthlings and uh, we were both rocked. Like I, I was blown away by the film um, in its holistic approach to the topic. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said, I had seen a lot of other documentaries, but um, I, I don't wanna say I became desensitized to slaughterhouse footage, but I kind of learned how to manage it. Yeah. Um, but the holistic nature of Earthlings uh, set me, me, back, me back in my seat um, and it reframed my relationship with this, um, with what I was going to do in my life. And I think that's the piece mm-hmm. that how it worked for me is that I said, instead of um, being vegan for me, I realized this isn't about me. It has nothing to do with me. <laughs> like it really has nothing to do with me. This is about the planet we live on and yeah. what role we play on the planet and what we can do to contribute to changing our ecosystem and, and, and uh, the world we live on. And um, you know, I'm just an ant in a colony and I have a job to do. And I didn't realize my job. That's really what it comes down to. And now it's like, okay, I'm on purpose. I have, I know what I'm supposed to do. This is my life's work as opposed to fabricating a purpose um, and trying to create purpose. It was just, uh, it was, it was obvious to me that there's work that needed to be done. It just like, and, 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 and um, that's what I got out of it. And, um, and Linda uh, she was blown away. So mm-hmm. for Linda, she had seen some of the documentaries, but really kind of tapped in and tapped out and mentally um, would prepare vegan food for the family from time to time because I was vegan. Um, but, you know, she was kind of wrecked for a couple of days, like really had to mm-hmm. be introspective. She went to a traditional uh, French culinary school and had a relationship with meat that was deep and cultural 
Um, and uh, for her, uh, it reframed her choices. And, and I had, I probably wore her down a little bit, to be honest, <laughs> over years. Like, I, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure there was some of that, but it was enough of a piece for her to say, I need to look at things differently myself. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I can do this anymore. And so she made yeah. a choice at that point to become vegan. And it's from that experience that meat was born. Oh, wow. Yeah. So like really we, you know, a lot of discussions ensued to say, how do we become part of the change and how do we, like we have the ability, like, cause we'd already had deviate restaurant before yeah. um, and we worked on the restaurant business. We had that set of skills and our partner in meat Evo had had a series of restaurants uh, Evo had approached us and said, Hey, I'd like to start a restaurant someday, uh, a while back. And we said, there's no way we're getting in the restaurant business. Again. <laughs> yeah. Like I know too much. I'm not going back again. It's like, that's how I feel. It's if like I when ever somebody ha- yeah. It's like when somebody has a child, they're like, I'm not having any more kids. And then like all of a sudden, what do you know? Yeah. They have a kid again. It's like, yeah. um, yeah, but, and it was the exact same thing. So for us, we got into this, we said, you know what, we don't want to do a restaurant. But what we want to do is make change. And right. so, so we said, what, like, like for me, we need to, like, it was like we had this eye opening uh, experience to say we have to be part of making change. And what is the best way to make change in, uh, when it came, came to food and veganism? Mm-hmm. And so it was through this understanding we said, okay, well, the best way to do it, at least I, I felt at the time, and I, I think I still feel today it's a bit of a trifecta. And the number one thing is people need restaurants because our society needs convenience. Um, And so we need to have um, uh, restaurants that um, create transitional opportunities for people where they can come in and see possibility themselves. And um, you're not trying to like, you know, I'd been around because I'd been exposed to veganism for years. I'd been to tons of raw vegan restaurants and I've taken people all excited. Hey, come into this place. And like, this food's terrible. Like I can't eat here. And, or, or they'll like, you know, they, they, if they don't go back themselves afterwards, it's like, it doesn't work or you haven't, you're not really creating the solution. Yeah. And, And these restaurants were, they were good at what they did. So I was like, okay, so we have to create transitional opportunities, speak to people in the language they speak and slowly make change that they ask for. They have to ask for the change. And so meat was created. And so we went back to Evo and we said, hey, this is our idea. You wanted to open up a restaurant. This is what we want to do for a restaurant. You want to do this. Mm. And so, um, so yeah, Evo was like, that sounds really good. It resonated uh, a lot with Evo. And so, so that's how meat came about. Um, yeah. And how did you come up with the name? Like tell it, uh, there must have been a lot of discussion yeah, the, around that. Yeah, there there was, uh, yeah, like there was a lot of iterations. Uh, uh, meat is where we ended up on. Like it was just uh, like, first of all, the value of bringing people together was something that we always, mm. like community matters. And so yeah. it was something that we wanted to, to do. Like, okay, so I want to give you a couple. Our dog's names right now are Mark and Steve. Like, you know, like we like, we like these names that are, you know, that get people to give a little chuckle. So uh, whenever we have a business, we want people to enjoy just going through the name. And so there was two aspects of it. When you had meet, where do you want to go? Let's meet on Maine. Like, so people would go through that exercise and it happened. So it creates conversation around the name. That was one thing. 
but it just meant so much the double entendre around yes. uh, you know, like it's just it worked in so many different ways i love it so um, much. and so yeah it just it came about and i think the name got tweaked by uh, i think we had a name that was longer and then maybe one of our kids said hey how about just calling it meat and and uh, and that's where we ended up with. Uh, with God, that. I love these kids that contribute to the names of our businesses. My daughter yeah. too, so that was awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's how that's how it came about, and and I actually think the name is going to become more and more relevant. Like as we as we move towards uh, food delivery systems, mm -hmm. delivering our food, and we get disconnected as a society with all the yeah. changes that are going on, I think we're going to need these oases where we can connect with and have human relationships with people totally. uh, we still need to order our food i don't think that's going to go away but we are also going to need to have human connection totally. and so um i think there's a lot of like uh, macro system change that's going on around us right now that we don't know where it's going to land but wherever it lands that connection piece is going to be part of what i think really keeps us human in the end Mm -hmm. And I think um, I think meat is going to be more relevant than than ever uh, as, as 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 time goes on. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, the name itself, um, again, you know, just from the name of your restaurants, we could have, again, a whole nother podcast, especially in the concept of, you know, at the time when you created meat, I mean, this is when the whole entire alternative meat industry you know, lab grown meat, you know, the impossible burger, beyond meat burger, everything like this was just like in its infancy. And if it was at all, no, nothing and, was around. Yeah. Like, when, we, when we started, nothing was around. There was yeah. uh, field roast was in, in Seattle uh, and years, a couple years into it or a year into it, beyond yeah. meat had started, but they weren't even making the burgers they're making no. today. Exactly. They're, like, they're making a different burger. Yeah, yeah totally. exactly. Like just a concept. And so now that's changed and that's huge because, you know, now when we have that discussion about meat, I mean, every Instagram post is somebody holding up an oyster steak or a, you know, there's just so many different variations or we make these amazing sausages, but it's made out of like lentil chickpeas, quinoa rice and herbs and rice paper wraps. It's from the engine Two diet cookbook and they're amazing. And, um, yeah. So, so yeah, the name itself is really remarkable and incredible. What is the, um, what's the, what's the future of meat? Like, what do you have in store? Cause, and we're going to get into doing, talking about some of the many other things that you do as well, but I just want to curious about that. Yeah. So uh, the future of meat, I, I think like there's a few things going on. Number one, we have to, you know, we go back to like we want to transition more people really mm -hmm. at the end of the day. So we are uh, kind of exploring different strategy on how we do that. At the end of the day, we want to get into communities that are the equivalent of food deserts yeah. and provide solutions and transition possibility. So what does that mean and how does that work? Well, um, I, I think what it's going to translate to, like right now we have three locations in the lower mainland. Um, I think we need to get outside of the lower mainland. And mm -hmm. uh, that's really what we've been, we've been actively looking at spaces for some time and we're not finding the type of experience that we want. So I think we're gonna have to modify what that experience is. Cause it's really important for us to, you know, um, even during the pandemic, we wanna get momentum and really uh, focus on the change piece and make sure that we can still open up uh, new markets because uh, mm -hmm. Vancouver is, I don't want to say it's saturated, but Vancouver is a beautiful place to be vegan. Yeah. 
It is. It's amazing. I yeah, love it. Like if, if you want Mexican vegan, you're there. You want sushi yeah. vegan, no problem. You can have yeah. any type of cuisine you want, Ethiopian. Like it's just like you can eat whatever you want, almost yeah. whenever you want. Um, and it's being made in many cases in an exclusively vegan restaurant. Yeah. So you don't even have to deal with cross-contamination no. and oh, there's a chicken wing in your fries or something. Like you don't have to deal with any of that crap anymore. Totally. In Vancouver. So it is great. Now, there are a lot of places um, that are underserved and come with great risk to open up a new business. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of like, that's why we're doing this. So um, on one hand, I want to go to large markets and um, create possibility that creates more entrepreneurial possibility. Because... Um, having more people open up more restaurants in more markets. Like I, I've, I believe, and I believe meat played a role in a lot of people, other people opening oh, up restaurants. For like sure I, it did. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I have a lot of people t telling me that. So yeah. I think if we went to Toronto, well, Toronto's already a decent city, but we go to a city that doesn't have a lot of choices. We open up that people say, Hey, this is a business opportunity. They're showing success. We can do it better. We can do it different. Yeah. That to me might like, as far as actually transitioning more people, that might function in that way. I kind of feel the, there's enough momentum. We don't have to do that. So mm -hmm. my, uh, my heart is telling me that um, we're going to spend more time in, the, in, in, in Q1 of this year exploring uh, smaller markets yeah. and figuring out how to modify our, um, our model a little bit to um, have a sustainable business model in a smaller market where you know, people don't eat out as often. Yeah. Um, and so we just have to figure that out because in Vancouver, we're very fortunate to have uh, people eating out on a Monday, a Tuesday, a Wednesday, totally. and all this kind of, like it's just people out all the time. Yeah. Whereas I, I, you know, in smaller markets, I, I, I expect there's going to be less of that and that it's going to be uh, harder to have your Monday night be busy. Like yeah. it's just, it's just going to be harder um, so this, but this is our exploration. I'm actually touring a series of areas in January to find those locations right now. Nice. So that's kind of the well, I know that there's a demand for it for sure. And I know this because, you know, you know, before COVID, I was flying a lot to, for teaching and uh, all the other work that I do. And I would meet like every single, I would just sit there in my chair and always somebody would come up to me and I don't know what it was. They just felt like they needed to tell me that they were vegan or vegetarian. And it's not like I was wearing green mustache, paraphernalia, like, you know, collateral, nothing like that. And we, I'd always end up having these amazing discussions. And this one guy, cowboy hat, he's in his, probably his seventies, if I remember. And this just happened two years ago. And he was from, oh my gosh, where is he from? Idaho and super small town. And, you know, we start chatting. He's a trucker. He lives on the road pretty much like 80% of the time and he's vegan. Right. And I was like, what, what yeah. you're vegan? And he's like, oh yeah, my wife and I went vegan and we started this community and it's like super small town. And so then I told him what I did and he was just like, so excited. And, you know, he's like, but we have no place to eat, you know? And meanwhile, he's got a whole entire chapter of you know, these people who are vegan and no place to eat, you know, and then I just interviewed a doctor on a podcast. Um, she's from the state's interior, smaller town. And she said the same thing. She's like, please, we need a green mustache in our town. And if she had been talking to you, she'd be like, we need a meat in our town. So there's definitely a demand for it, but it's just a matter. I think of I'm in the same boat, like terrified to open in some of these smaller places because 
our labor costs are high. It, when you're chopping vegetables, watching vegetables, you know, working in that, it's, it takes a lot of resources. But I also believe that it's also will create the demand just like it did for us the first time we opened in you as well. Yep. The model's broken though. Like it really, it costs, um, and this comes back to all my original thinking is that the model is created to make food cheap. Yes, it is. And cheap food makes people ill. So the model is broken. Like the food model is really broken. And so like at the end of the day, people need to eat less yeah. and the system is built for people to eat more. Yeah. Um, so that's problem number one. The system is also built to not have good quality yeah. and to be well, you need to eat less of better food. Yeah. Um, and businesses can't survive if you need, like you need to be able to pay your staff living wages and, totally. and it's hard to pay, especially in a city like Vancouver. It's just like our staff don't earn living wages because the model's broken. Yeah. And if we raise prices like they are in Europe, it's really simple economics. People just eat out less. Yeah. And people have less shifts. People make less tips. Like the model yeah. is broken. And so, um, and again, I, I spend time on this trying to figure out how do we make the model better? Um, so we reward people by eating less better food. And that's what people want. But it, it's like, we have some time to get to that place. We're just not there today. No. Uh, but we need to get to that place because that, like, if we want, if we want to have health yeah. and we want to get to that place, we really need to reframe our relationship with food societally. Because yeah. right now it's happening on the individual level. That's great. Like it's it's a it's a magical consciousness shift that's going on with the individual right now. Yeah. And um, there's some really like some enlightenment going on, but you know, at the same time as this, there's a lot of dark stuff going on yeah. that is not really, it's, it's not great. And so usually that's the way it is. The opposing forces do their dance, yeah. but consciousness is shifting in this way. Like it's, it does, it, it, it is um, very special to see the growth of veganism um, mm. over the last five years. It yeah. is, I, I wouldn't have predicted, I could never have predicted that the change would have happened so rapidly. I, I, I know why it's happened because venture capital got into it and they yeah. <laughs> co-opted veganism and it became plant-based. Like I know totally. what happened, what caused it, um, but it happened very, very quickly. You know, for somebody who's been vegan for 18 years, how I was treated as a vegan for the first 13 years of those 18 years compared to now, it's like, now it's, it's kind of like, doesn't really matter that you're vegan. People yeah. understand it. They know what it is back then not so much like you were the annoying alien i'm probably still the annoying <laughs> alien, just for different reasons but yeah yeah like it's uh yeah. it, it is very very true uh you know yeah. um I, I found i wouldn't talk about it unless i had to like i wasn't one of yeah. those people that wanted to get out there i would be semi-difficult in restaurants um, only because I was trying to get what I wanted but I didn't want to engage the conversation that's yeah. not my form of activism uh, I was I'm very much a covert activist like I very I want to tactically active uh, like change yeah. um, and I think that's why that's certainly my form of activism as I said it was very uh, strategic oh you know we missed the trifecta we'll have to get back to that actually to talk about yeah the other two elements of the of the trifecta which we will get back to yeah but uh, at any rate so uh well, let's get back. Let's get into that. I want to know the other two elements, and I know our audience wants to now know yeah. the other two elements of the trifecta for sure. Yeah, sure. So we 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 yeah, it's so easy to get these these uh, 
Um, these discussions really segue easily. So uh, yeah, the first element being the restaurant thing to make change, create possibility and transition. The second element was grocery is mm -hmm. that if you are a coffee drinker and your life is based around you wake up in the morning, you have a coffee and in that coffee you put a creamer and the creamer you have um, has these attributes. You like hazelnut creamers and you want a certain viscosity and a certain amount of sweetness. And if you don't have that experience, it ruins your day mentally. Yeah. Like, like it yeah. ruins your day. Then we have to show you that there are plant-based and vegan alternatives that can do that. And we have to not only show you that those are possible, we have to create market demand and sales. So businesses build these solutions for people. Mm -hmm. And five years ago or six years ago or seven years ago, when we opened Vegan Supply, there was one solution and then two and then five and now maybe thousands around the world. Like a market that had no solutions in oh. most categories now has limitless amount like more than we can carry so oh, and it's it's crazy because of the fact that a it's all done within a few categories as well so the milk the cheese right yeah. uh the butters a little bit uh when it comes to you know in which i understand it because these are the number one reasons why people want to become vegan or vegetarian for whether it's health reasons or, you know, um, you know, protecting animal reasons or environmental reasons, right? We know that that that's going to be the first switch that happens and probably the most important switch. But I mean, I was at Planted Expo speaking a couple months ago and there must have been 50 different cheese companies, all vegan cheese lines, all within Vancouver. Yeah. There's tons, there's yeah. tons. And you know what? Some of them have absolutely amazing products. Yeah. Some of them need more development. And like, oh, yeah. some of them, you know, it feels like you're eating sand. Uh, like they haven't yeah. like, and, you know, and, and they don't Or say, plastic. Or plastic, <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's, uh, um, yeah. And, and, but I think what's beautiful about that is that people who want a granular almond-based cheese because yeah. they don't like dealing with cashews, but they like the texture, that granularity, yeah, they can, ha you can build a little network of people who have this special business building this one that, you know, has the, um, the properties that you want that resonate with you and you build a community around it. And even though from my perspective, I don't think that cheese is great. They don't need to, that's not, that doesn't matter whether I think no. it's great. Yeah. As long as they have their group of 400 people or 300 people that order from them on a totally. regular basis they build a community around their product and it's a solution and it's amazing. It's amazing. And so it's, uh, and, and as I said, at different points in my journey, I would have needed a certain cheese that I don't need today. Um, and I, I think, uh, anyways, it's just, it's super exciting. All these, all these changes, but with all those things, there's kind of people who are taking advantage of this space and trying to um, uh, really just profit off the space. They don't care about, yeah. Um, the roots of it and and for me i'm actually okay with it if people kill less animals like i don't yeah. it's not the way i want to see it happen but i've watched so much change happen that um our system as i said is broken so to play within the system to make the change and have yeah. the system work on our behalf has been part of this strategy is get oh, yeah. them, get get them to make the change we want because it's making money for them i don't want the money you guys can go ahead Make all the money you guys want, create all the yeah. public companies you want, yeah. and let's make the change. And we'll do it in a lot of different ways. Like to me, activism has always been like that. Yeah. We need people taking on all forms of activism. 
to make the changes that require. Now, the type of activism that resonates for me is not going to resonate for everybody else. Um, and um, I, I, I really, I'm grateful the people that um, stand outside um, slaughterhouses mm -hmm. and block trucks and make people think there's a problem with our system. Yeah. How are we letting this happen? Taking photos of animals with tears coming down their yeah. eyes and scared about to go into slaughter and they know what's going on. Yeah. And they're capturing these things and they're spending a chunk of their lives doing this type of work. And they feel like they're connecting to the problems of our society, mm -hmm. not in a way where they're watching it on a documentary in a disconnected manner, they are intertwined with it and they are part of it. So it becomes part of who they are and their identity as opposed to something they consume. And so yeah. like it's a, uh, it, and again, we consume so much stuff. So it's easy just to let it go in the past until you actually intertwine yourself into a solution and a problem. You don't really internalize it. Like you, yeah. it's very, like we're so desensitized by all the things that we consume. Nothing holds that much weight anymore. Yeah. But when you actually um, interact with uh, you know the uh, the actual nature of the problem itself, I just think it changes you forever. So, oh, for sure. But and there's something really important what what you said too, just about um, the type of activist that you want to be and knowing who your audience is and how you're going to do it because we all have a role to play in this, right? So, you know, you're the activist by creating the restaurants, by creating vegan food supply, um, sorry, vegan supply company, um, and, you know, and doing this incredible work. And then by having other activists who are out there creating the media hype and, you know, getting people to be like, what's going on over there? Like you just threw paint on somebody, like, what was that about? And, you know, and so we need people like that at the slaughterhouses, not just fighting for the animals. I just want to make this point, not just fighting for the animals, but also fighting for the workers in those slaughterhouses, because they experience such trauma on yeah. a daily basis and that trauma gets carried home in the form of violence against their family members because of having to do this work for the majority of the people out there who just go to the store and buy their chicken and their beef and their lamb and everything but forget that that individual who had to slaughter that animal now is had to shut off their emotions shut off their pain but it surfaces and it unfortunately it surfaces in the form of domestic violence self-abuse and which you know then of course creates that um you know that that trauma that gets passed down through the generation so we also for people out there it's really important for them to know that but thank god for the activists that are out there and like and then also activists who are out there creating earthlings right and you know so we all can do our work yeah. in different ways that um aligns with our purpose and our gifts in the world yeah, yeah. And that is the third part of the trifecta from my perspective. And this is an area where we need to spend more time. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, education, messaging, you know, the use of, uh, you know, social to try and really get the word out in a way that resonates with a specific type of an audience. And, and, um, and so I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to spend more time doing that um, as, uh, as, as this whole movement evolves. Because I think that, um, at the beginning, messaging in all forms is good. Um, mm -hmm. I think as, as we evolve, uh, nuanced messaging matters. And I think yeah. we need to make sure that we uh, are um, a little bit more tactical in 
in some of the information that gets out and mm -hmm. um, and that we want to be part of um, really supporting those that are doing progressive work that's part of um, fixing some of the broken problems in the food system. And mm -hmm. so we want to make sure that we're supporting those that need support. Because a lot of people, there's a lot of companies out there, like this piece right now, one of the challenges I face in vegan, uh, for me that I see with veganism, while I'm excited about this corporate um, expansion of veganism, because it's expanding veganism, it also is disheartening for me because small business is getting crushed by it. Yeah. And so uh, like, it's kind of like, I would like to see veganism in the hands of the individual and uh, the community. Yeah. Um, but I've watched those businesses fail. So I think we, again, we have to try and figure out how to, while one is going on, make sure that we're able to do both. Yeah. Um, and I think that is part of this next chapter a little bit to make sure that we're supporting and, and bringing up young entrepreneurs and, and uh, people, change makers who are going to be part of uh, a new tomorrow. I think that's really important. Um, and then on top of that, I think that we also need to um, really reflect on, uh, you know, really, I, I guess veganism, the vegan community used to be a very collaborative community. Mm -hmm. um, the change that I've seen right now, it's turning to be a little more competitive than it used to be. Yeah. Um, and I hope that's not, I think that's like, just like, like some of the bigger businesses, they have a responsibility to shareholders that as an independent business, I don't, I yeah, make a I lot of decisions. That. I make a lot of decisions that are bad for business and financially don't make a lot of sense. Yeah i'm trying to make change first they might not be able to make those same choices or just choose not to make those same choices because their sphere of influence their little circle that makes those decisions they're just using a different lens yeah. so i um anyways we'll, we'll just you can well, see where you bring up a good point there though because that's another thing that needs to change in the financial financial sector because of the fact that you know, especially we know you and I both know the restaurant industry is insane. It is crazy. We work so hard and the return, most restaurants actually only make about one to 2% in profit. So anybody okay. who wants to do the math on that, do the math on that. And it is not very much money. Most restaurants don't survive a year. If they do, they don't survive five years. And if they're lucky, like we're at eight years, you know, and we're still in that um, category of like, if we make it to 10 years, that would be like remarkable. Um, and so just think about that. Like, you know, meanwhile, like think about how long Nike has been around and, you know, and so, so the thing is, is that it is such a hard industry, but what needs to change is the financial model as well. And we were really lucky. We raised money a couple of years ago from incredible investors who said, guess what? we're investing in you and we're investing in your vision of change. And I was like, what? Right. Yeah. Like I was thinking about like the return on their investment and how I was going to make that for them. And they're like, here's the money. We'll see you in 10 years. We want to see you make change in the world. And that's also because I chose to take money from investors who had healed themselves through food. So one of our investors had had severe mental health issues. He healed himself through food, you know, and he's a huge, massive hedge fund, you know, private equity guy. And, you know, but he's somebody who said, we have to make this change. So 
there is that whole conversation too that needs to be happening around who do we take money from? How do you want to make your money? How do you want to grow your business? And that also comes to having values around your business and values around the growth. So do you want to go public? And if you go public, what is that going to look like? You can have those values set in place first before you say yes to the money. Yeah, you need to actually. You have to. Yeah. And we've had, we've had many offers of people coming to us with money that it just, it wasn't right for us. Yeah. Um, uh, I haven't had the offer of somebody come to me say, Hey, we'll give you unlimited money. Cause we want to make change. We yeah. haven't had that person. Um, uh, however, though, it might come a day where that's right. To be fair, we haven't looked for any of that money. Yeah. Um, and maybe, you know, if we looked for that money, that money would come to us. Um, but, uh, I, I think it's exciting. That comes back to that consciousness shift. Yeah. I don't think there was as many of those people in the financial sector that went through that evolution of thought and yeah. got to the place where they realized, I, you know, what is another five million or five hundred million going to do me? Like, yeah. uh, I want to, like, I'm going to die. That's the other thing. You get older and you're like, I'm going to die. I'm going to yeah. die at some point soon-ish. Like in, yeah, yeah like I'm going to die soon-ish. And so if I'm going to die soon-ish, what do I want to die? Do I want to die with tons of money? Yeah, that's what I that's that's on my resume on the on, on the on the block of stone, or do I want to die with making tons of change and being comfortable while I make tons of change? No problem. Totally. You want to be comfortable while you make change? Go for it. So I think that awareness is happening, and I think that it's exciting that some of this change money is coming towards uh, to, towards veganism. So. Yeah. Um, but I, I would like to get back on, on something that I think is part yes. of the problem with this system. And that is the difference between veganism and plant-based. Yes, let's talk and, about that. <laughs> yeah, because like, I think it's really important for me is that while this is going on, uh, I, um, in the background, while, while the plant-based world is expanding, which again, I, I think it's, it's great in some ways, I think the compromise uh, for me is there's a big distraction from the underlying problem, which is really, this is about animals. It's not about your diet. It really isn't mm -hmm. about your diet. Um, and your diet matters, but if you just take care of your diet, the world's not gonna change. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, ground beef will still be cheaper if you keep buying leather shoes. And yeah. like, like, like we're basically like, we have to remove that subsidy, like all forms of subsidy have to be extracted from the meat industry um, during transition times. They, like there needs to be a level playing field. So plant-based food is funded at a greater rate than the meat industry. Yeah. Um, it's not to say that, um, like this is a tough conversation. I think a conversation that I'd like, to, I need to explore more mentally. Like maybe there's some forms of subsidy that responsible meat should get to kind of wean the industry. Like maybe there's a way you have to transition the industry. But like for me, it feels like it's time to actually you know, break that industry and, and, um, and put those same money towards innovative uh, plant-based entrepreneurs um, to actually have that, the subsidy change. But really to get back to it is byproducts subsidize the meat industry yeah. and, and they harm animals and we want to minimize harm. And there's like, I don't think people could ever understand um, the scope of the problem of how many byproducts are in our industrialized system it's not even Ugh. our food yeah. um like there's such our, a good there's such a good ted talk and i don't know if you ever saw it but you just reminded me of it and a woman she's a researcher scientist and she explores how pigs pig products are in 
300, like thousands of different products, but in your day, so even if like you are vegan, from the moment you wake up in the morning, considering like the bed usually, if you touch your wall, there's pig products in the paint. There's pig products like throughout 300 different things, or it's like even 1500 different things that you're going to come in contact that day. And, you know, it's, it's amazing how, and some people will say, well, those are the byproducts of the meat industry, but the whole entire fact is we need to not even have those byproducts be there because right, like, the amount of animals per one human, like what you probably know this better than I do, but like a hundred years ago, like the amount of cows to human ratio was so small compared to what it is now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's so many, like, obviously with all these conversations we're having, we could jump into really deep conversations on so many different things. The, I think I can illustrate the problem is a lot of like, for instance, dairy consumption is down. Mm-hmm. If you looked at five years ago, there was no dairy products and salt and vinegar chips. Yeah. Now, neither. If you were to look at your salt and vinegar chip bag, a chunk of them, potato chips have uh, modified milk ingredients in it or yeah. milk powder or whatever. And they're repurposing some of these, bi- uh, some of these um, products to have certain experiences in these, um, you know, you know, either way to be mouthfeel or adaptability yeah. or whatever, Texture, whatever, everything. Yeah, who knows what they're trying to accomplish with each, yeah. each of those products. They all have attributes. And, um, and so, uh, you know, this is something that consumers need to make active choices and be vocal about and say, Hey, Lay's or whatever the potato chip brand is that you used to consume. Can you please take the dairy out of that? Uh, product that you've added it to over the last couple of Miss years. Vicky's Miss Vicky's has milk in it yeah. yeah yeah these things these things never existed it used to like it used to be one of those things where it costed more so they wouldn't do it yeah and my guess is now it's a combination of they've done analytics and they say they they sell 1.9 percent more uh you know bags of product when they use it people or consumers are enjoy the taste more or something um, what I what I bet you they don't do is they don't do a comparative analysis to say, even though there's the taste preference might, might go up, the number of people who don't buy your product as a result of it being in there, yeah. my guess is there's a net loss. Is oh, yeah, for sure. The number of people who are allergic to dairy and um, philosophically against dairy consumption, I think out, would outweigh anybody who would actually notice any taste difference exactly. preferentially to eating a potato chip that has dairy in it. Yeah. Um, I'd be really confused, uh, you know, again, I'd, I'd, I'd like to know more about why that even is. But to get back to it, though, the vegan versus plant-based thing for us, I think it's really important that if we talk about small entrepreneurs, we need to support small entrepreneurs that are looking into the alternatives solutions. And so there's really cool ones coming up. I think there's mushroom leather, there's pineapple leather, mm-hmm. there's like, like people are creating all these things. And when, and I think that, you know, again, for listeners out there, Uh, I'm not saying you should just get rid of all the stuff you have and go buy more stuff. But when you choose to buy uh, a bag or a wallet or a a belt, you might want to just do some research and say, is there an alternative to an animal-based product that can work for me for a long enough time that it makes sense for me to have that? And for people who are into fashion who want to consume more, for them, it's a lot easier. Some people want to buy a wallet and have it last for 10 or 15 years. Um, but other people want to buy something and consume it on a more regular basis. For those people, especially, please integrate 
plant-based products into your purchasing, yeah. um, it really it really shifts the world we live in by doing so. Um, and I'm glad that you brought that up because this is something I struggle with because I used to be in waste management in government and that was one of the projects that you know I had to manage and and you know this whole recycling program that we have like it's a bunch of bullshit right like we have to do it you have to do it so please recycle but if you actually knew what was going on behind the scenes like it is it just it would break your heart but we have to recycle because we don't want that going to landfill. But what happens to the recycling is what you need to be questioning. But so it's not about recycling. It's about reducing and reusing. Like this is the most important thing you can do. Like if you're already recycling, amazing. Now you can take it one step further. So what do you think about this? Because I don't call myself a vegan because I still wear the same leather belt that I had when I was 17. And, but I don't, I haven't bought a belt in since I was 17, like, you know, like I only have one belt. And so for myself as well, like, you know, I have this same ski jacket that I had, I think I've had it for 20 years. My kids is it, are like, is, this, is it a sun ice that's uh, got lots of different colors on it? <laughs> Almost. You'd be, what was it? Oh, uh, oh yeah. You'd die if you knew which my ski pants are, but like, and I've had the same pair of ski pants as well for the last, like, I think it's been 20 years. I bought them before when my husband and I started dating, same pair of pants. And so um, so that's the thing that I struggle with is, um, you know, by wearing the same leather shoes, the same leather belt is in, and walking around in that, am I perpetuating also a desire in other people to consume leather? And that's something I struggle with versus do, you know, and I like what you said, like when it's time to replace the product, of course, I'm going to replace it with a vegan alternative um, not a leather alternative. And I'm going to go to the reuse it center and probably, um, get something that's been used and loved before pre-loved. I love pre-loved stuff. Yeah. So, you know, what are your thoughts about that? Because that is something I struggle with all the time, especially because there's so many plant-based products or vegan products out there that are just shit. They don't even last a day. Yeah, it's right? true. So you do have to buy the stuff that is going to last a few days, at least. Otherwise we're just putting more trash into the world. Yeah. So um, I would say that I, my, my thoughts around this have evolved over time. I guess there are people who, it's kind of like we talked about transition in the food community, mm -hmm. is that um, some of the food choices that people make aren't the healthiest choices, but it's a transition away from eating more animals. We're, we live in fast fashion world right now. Yeah, we do. So you can have fast fashion that kills animals and you can have fast fashion that doesn't. Yeah. So if you're going to buy a whatever, a $75 uh, winter puff parka that's in shimmering green, um, I would rather you bought that same parka made of synthetic materials, yeah. uh, you know, barring um, some information about that synthetic parka that I don't know that causes more damage or something. But like, I'd rather we work to save animals um, uh, when we can, because quite frankly, nobody saves animals unless we do, like people yeah. have to do that. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I think in, in many cases, these discussions are more complex because there's layers of issues like yeah. your idea of trying to re rebuy, I, I think really matters because there's there is a uh, there should be a bigger secondhand economy out there for these types of things. But I would like to get back to something a little nuanced about this that mm -hmm. for me, I got to a place where I wasn't wearing uh, a leather belt around my waist. I was wearing the flesh of an animal. Mm -hmm. around mice and when mentally you get to that place you can't wear the belt anymore you just can't like 
when you see it as a utilitarian thing that holds up your pants, you can do it forever. Mm-hmm. When you see it, like if what you were wearing, if the belt was a series of noses and eyes and ears, and that's what made up your belt, there's no friggin' way you're as a vegetarian or vegan, you're going to wear that belt. And so I'm sorry if I just ruined your belt for you, but for, no. but for me, I, I, I just got to the point where I was like, holy shit, I can't, sorry, yeah. I can't do that anymore. Like I, it's part of that awareness is that as much as I want to, um, this product that serves a function, I don't want to rebuy it. I don't want to do that again. I also can't have that animal on me anymore. Like I can't do that. The animal made a sacrifice. There's tons of other people that can wear this animal if they want. Some people would say, give that to somebody else who could rewear the animal yeah. so we don't have to buy another one again. That's possibility. There's a lot of other people who have this school of thought is like, let's put that back to the ground. Let that animal go back to the earth. Yeah. And, um, and I, don't, I, you know, I don't know which one is right. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm concerned that somebody would buy another leather belt. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think for me, I got to the place personally where I thought I was just going to replace everything over time. And then I was in a situation where I don't wear a lot of stuff. Like I wear mm. one belt. Like I don't, I don't wear 10. I don't, I'm not, I'm yeah. not into fashion. Isn't my most important driving factor. So I would, I, you know, I, I, I tend to wear one pair of boots, one pair of shoes and I wear them until they wear out and I get yeah. another one. And I have a couple things for occasions that I never go to. So it's like, I, like, especially in COVID, like I just don't go to those. Things. Oh, now we're not wearing like 90% of the clothes that are in our closet at all because we're all working from home. Sure. So yeah. again, I, I, can I replace one pair of shoes in two years? The answer is yes. Mm-hmm. And can I make a responsible choice when I do that? The answer is yes. yes. And so that is the path that I chose. Now I am, I'm very like, I'm in the community in such a way that for me, it, it has a greater importance than maybe yeah. it does for other people. But to go back to my perspective, like when you reframe what you're doing, when you use these animal byproducts, mm-hmm. um, I will say for veganism, I don't know if you've experienced this, but when, like there was a transition that happened to me in my vegan journey for the first series of years when I was vegetarian, as I said, it was very much a diet. And then it switched to a lifestyle and I understood the problems around um, what was going on with animal agriculture and the environment. And I really understood the holistic nature of, of what was going on. But during, somewhere, and I can't pinpoint the time, but somewhere in the arc of my story there, I discovered that, like, I, I re-looked at animals. Like, I, you don't see them as food anymore. Like, it's just, it is, it is as... Mm-hmm. Um, like crazy of a thought as eating another human is to eat another animal. Like it's just, you, you just, they're just not food. They're just not, they're not on that. And it, there's most of the vegetarians and vegans that I know haven't made the mental shift that I'm talking about. Like you just can't understand the shift that happens until it actually happens. And that's why byproducts and all those types of things are like for a lot of people, um, you know, like a little bit of something is okay, but I just, it disgusts me now, the thought of an animal product in my food. Like, again, what's what's odd is that if somebody else is eating meat, it's not my preference, but I don't, it doesn't stop me from socializing with Mm -hmm. them. I can go out to a restaurant, but for me, myself, I just, it's, I don't look at it in the same way at all. It really is as, 
as out there as somebody eating another person or their pet. Like they literally have their pet dog and they just said, you know what, I'm hungry today. Let's eat, you know, Joey or something. I guess this, and uh, I don't think most vegetarians are in that space. Vegans are in that No, space. and I know what you mean by that. When you arrive at that place, it is profound. It's like there's not a, there's no going back when you arrive there. Like it is a shift on a, the deepest cellular, spiritual, mental, physical, emotional level. And uh, what I love about what, like even just this conversation that we're having as well and the point that you brought up too, just about you can go out with somebody who's not vegan and you can still socialize and enjoy their company. And even just you and I talking about like the leather belt, I keep it the leather shoe, like what do I do? And just for us to be able to have this conversation um, because we all come at it from a different angle, right? I came in at first from in, from an environmental standpoint, it was about the massive amount of waste on the planet. And, you know, which then led me to understand, um, you know, how food played a part in that waste system. And then, of course, understanding water consumption, you know, and it just through all of that. So for me, it was environmental, then health. And then now I know, like, you know, and I've tried just to see if the, I've had that response that you're talking about, where, you know, if let's say, you know, to have a little bit of meat in my mouth. And it does feel, it's like I'm eating like the soul of another human, you know, or another living thing. And it's just, can't, my body will not allow me to swallow it. It is like, it will not go for that. Whereas, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, that wasn't the case for me. And so now, and so for everybody, I feel like we're going to arrive. It, it, it is a spiritual journey as well. And that, oh, I, yeah. And that epiphany and that um, shift that happens and whether it's you start out being vegan for animal reasons and then you also then can't purchase the product because you understand the effect that it has on the planet from an environmental perspective or health perspective. So we're all coming at it from all of these different angles. I love it. And it just feels like now more and more, more people are coming to that place, that place of total health on all levels where it's all included in one. Yeah, I think it's it's I think it's necessary. Um, yeah, and I, I, again, the the you know the movies that we're experiencing, mm-hmm. like people uh, people are talking about a lot of different issues that they hadn't talked about um, in uh, in the, the mainstream media, which is great. It's good to see, and uh, I I am seeing a bit of a consciousness shift, but I am also seeing what what I appear to see is like strategic conflicting messages to mm. leave people in confusion so totally. you know like they don't like we are being disempowered we're you know we're, like we're not being brought together to create better solutions we're being disempowered because we don't know who to trust and you know this whole idea of false news and stuff is really unfortunate because it it does create um you know a lot of wavering where mm-hmm. people are, are left crippled and they are indecisive um, on how to, like they're not, in, people are being empowered with hope right now. Yeah. And so I think it's really important when we're trying to make change in this area that, you know, all the change makers need to be uh, creating consistent messaging for them. And it's not going to be the same messaging, but they're building um, audiences that subscribe to what they believe in and are congruent with those thoughts and enough that they can actually act because people need to make change. Mm-hmm. And the only way they're going to make change when they're empowered and ha- are hopeful um, and uh, we, so we need to make sure that everybody, all the different people in their form of activists, activism, sorry, uh, need to be on this, um, this path of empowerment. And because mm-hmm. uh, otherwise we're just not going to get anywhere. And so I think uh, I, I feel sorry for people um, in the noisy environment that mm-hmm. we're in right now, 
trying to consume all these different um, media sources that are very, very loud and are arguably yeah. so loud that it's very difficult to know what to trust. Um, it's, it's, a it's a challenging time. And I think this is why you, you described it as a spiritual journey. I think people need to, um, I, you know, again, if I was to touch on this in a very quick way, is that I think we need to uh, look in and we mm -hmm. talk about our stomachs and our gut, we get that gut feel. Yeah. We need to consume a lot of information, fine, yeah. and then go within and say, what resonates? What's right? And then we try things and see, was I right? And then we are course correcting and editing yeah. and auditing along the way as we, um, you know, you hear businesses talk about pivoting. Um, we are our own business. We're trying we to, are. you know, run our machines well. And so we have a vessel to bring our spirit into the world. And we need to make sure that the vessel is optimized and the, um, there's not a, um, a manual for an optimized vessel for each of us. Because unfortunately, like we're, our vessels are like the difference between a, like an owner's manual in each car brand of a model. There's no owner manual for this vessel. Like it just doesn't exist. There's a series of like loose papers that if you're really, you're great, you can assemble all those loose papers and create an owner's manual for your vessel. Um, but that takes work and time and you yeah. have to go, oh, this one's wrong. And you take page six out, you put a new page six in, you try that page six out and you go, okay, this page six is right for this totally. time in my life. And then you end up with, by the time you're about to go in your box, you've assembled your manual and your manual is done. And you're like, okay, I'm done. Off to your next chapter. But it's yeah. a lifetime's work to work on your manual yes. and, and you know, your vessel is in the best state when you work on your manual, as opposed to uh, deciding that quite frankly, that overwhelming task of working on your manual, you just can't go there, which no. is something that a lot of people get to because no. it's, it's just overwhelming, right? It's too much work exactly. to do that. Or, or the other side of that that I see happen often is when people hand over themselves and allow somebody else to create the manual for them. Which is impossible. And this is, no, it is impossible and it'll just take you down the wrong path. You feel lost, you feel hopeless, you feel despair. And so it is so important that people take that. And I'm so glad that you brought that up, that we need to go in because right when you were saying that just before I was like, and if we just went in and actually just checked into what our values are, our real values. And when I do this work with my clients, the real values that come forth are things like kindness, compassion, empathy, love, you know, and then when you apply those values to finance, to the food choices you're making, the other consumer choices you're making, you know, the relationships where you want to spend your money, everything, then it allows you to make those decisions so much easier, despite what all the noise is out there. So if kindness is something that you really value, then that kindness can't just be kindness for yourself or your child. It has to extend to kindness for everything around you. So the animals, the workers at the slaughterhouses, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that's probably one of the most important things that people can do right now is to go within and check into what their values are. Yeah, they have to you know, create a compass and just have, let that compass guide you. Yeah. Um, and uh, you can modify the compass, I guess, as time goes on. Um, there is something I want to touch in on, though, because I think I, I want to be careful not to mislead people. Um, what I'm saying, when you create that manual for your vessel, mm -hmm. I, I don't want anybody to think that I don't think the conventional medical system 
Like, yeah. I don't think people make all their decisions based on what they feel like, oh, I feel I should do that because we have a lot of voices that tell us to do things we shouldn't be doing. So yeah. I don't think the average person should um, exclusively do any one thing or they're going to end up in trouble. If you listen mm -hmm. to any one source, um, you're going to have troubles. If you're listening to your doctor every day and you've handed your health over to your doctor, you are going to be getting the benefits of your doctor's intelligence, but you're also going to be getting the compromises with their biases. Yes. And so it's like, so our, and, and so what I, what I'm trying to, and I really think it's really important here is that it's really important to consume a lot of information, especially when you're dealing with problems, get a lot of information on the table, talk to people, you um, uh, respect their opinions listen to what they say and have people guide you and give you suggestions, but you might get different guides in different areas for different yeah. things. And I think not only you might, you probably should, because some people um, understand the nuance of you as an individual better mm -hmm. than others. Um, and um, yeah, there's just, there's, there's just better sources for certain materials and you got to go with your gut. Um, yeah. But I would say the, it's, it's based on a foundation of questioning everything. You yeah. have to question even those people you trust the most. You shouldn't assume that like the people you love and trust and respect the most can still give you wrong information. Oh yeah. And not only can they, are, they will give you the wrong information, yes. not for lack of trying, yeah. But just because it's impossible for us to always be right. Like we're yeah. usually wrong a big chunk of the time and it doesn't matter how smart you are, how much yeah. you've studied a certain topic or area. We have limitations. We're human. And we, are, especially when we take on other people's limitations and we bring them as our own, that's, that is something that is, that's dangerous. Like it's it really dangerous dangerous. So well, I'm glad that you brought that up because uh one of the things that I do that often my clients think is pretty crazy of me is I go, "Hey, I want you to go on the internet. And I want to you to google your face off. Like just google your face off on on everything that I'm telling you and I want you to come to me with everything that you find." Right? Just That's amazing. Yeah. And it's because um I can direct them to where I want to direct them to, but that's only going to highlight my own biases like whether they're actual facts that are true and proven or not, but it's what I know now today. So I don't even guide them to my resources. I guide them to everybody else's. And then that way they're going to get lost in the information and all the noise for a while. But then at least they come back to me and they're like, well, I found this and it said this about that. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, I've looked at that too. And here's what I know about that and about this and about that. And then what happens is they've learned so much in the process. The second thing that I do is I go, okay, you're coming to me. Now I want you to consider going out and getting second opinions from a naturopath, a Chinese medicine doctor, like your doctor. So I work with their medical teams as well. And what happens there that is so nice is that they get to, again, get multiple different voices. But then often what happens is that they actually start to see the patterns that yeah. come out. And then they're like, well, that's interesting that doctor said diet's important or that doctor said plant-based would be better for me. Maybe that doctor wouldn't have said, I want you to switch to a plant-based or vegan diet, but they did say plant-based. And so then the person's creating their own patterning and then they're starting to a also realize how to, you know, within the noise, there are those gems. And that brings us back full circle to what you said right at the very beginning, right? It's to go and take all the things that feel right, sound right, um, and all the gems from all of these different areas. And then that's when you're assembling your own manual. 
Yeah, and I think it's really important is that is you also have to understand that you're going to be wrong. Yes. You know, you're going to be wrong. You're going to try things and you shouldn't have tried those things. And you have to like, you shouldn't try things. It has to be a risk. There has to be a risk reward equation in your head that goes on. Right. It's like, if you're going to try something like I wouldn't all of a sudden, uh, you know, like I think Wim Hof, I I love uh, his cold immersion therapies, but I wouldn't jump into uh, the Burrard Inlet for like three hours thinking that cold therapy is going to be good because you're going to die. Yeah. So like it, you just like, there's some things that you have to, you have to balance all this with um, a risk reward equation that you put yeah. in your head and the guides that I'm talking about, I'm not saying do everything on your own. I think Google research is great, um, but it's also, you have to be in a state where you can discount most of the information that you're going to yeah. get because most of it isn't going to be correct. So it is, it is a dance. And I love the service you provide because you're really, um, you know, I, I like the concept of a guide and um, uh, somebody who's going to really shepherd somebody along the way to make their discovery. Because when, when um, an individual makes a discovery through collecting all that uh, information, they internalize it. When exactly. they're told something, they, they, they might preach it, but they don't internalize it. Yeah, like it's just you, info. Yeah, yeah. And when you internalize something, it becomes part of your constitution until it's not relevant anymore. And so I think what we, again, part of this whole process is to create that discovery and not like, you know, preaching is is part of a solution. But really, um, we need to create environments where people can learn. Yeah. And, uh, and so like, I love how you do with your clients. That's just, uh, that's amazing. Well, and it's, you know, I learned that from, you know, probably other coaches, teachers, you know, people who had also done the same for me. And I just know that that's how I learn as well is that nobody really makes a, you know, a decision to do something cold turkey overnight. It's actually been the accumulation of information and all these little different gems that have come in over a long period of time that you may or may not remember. A lot of them you forget, but they are there in the subconscious working their working their magic. And so then usually it's just like that tipping point in the case for, you know, your wife, you know, your partner that it, you know, watching earthlings one day, but she had had multiple different messages, you know, just like you were born into a yogic family, you know, mom and, you know, with sprouts growing on the windowsill. And so your messages were, were coming in, in all of these multiple different ways that eventually enabled you when you got diagnosed with Crohn's disease to then be able to be open to then formulating your manual and those patterns. And so, yeah, it's, it's a tough world to navigate in this world of, you know, every single day, there's more information created in that day that was ever created in the lifetime of information, which is a crazy fact um, and statistic. And so that's the thing is that, you know, we do have to then figure out the way to navigate that. But I think it is time, as a ritual says, to land this plane. And all that means is we're going to take off again. And I know we're going to be doing a few more podcasts because there are so many nuggets in here that we're just, you know, we need to dive into further. But where do you want people to come find you? Where would you like people to come learn more? you know, get inspired by you. Okay, so I guess I'll give uh, the work that I'm doing, uh, meat restaurants, uh, eatmeat.ca is the website. We have Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and uh, uh, TikTok. Uh, But 
probably, I, I, you really need to get down to the restaurants in Vancouver. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, meat restaurants. Uh, we also have vegan supply. We have two bricks and mortar stores for vegan supply, retail store, specialty products. Um, and we have an online store at vegansupply.ca and vegansupply.com. You can see the types of products that we're carrying today. And I would expect a lot of change uh, in vegan supply in, in the next period of time. I'm going to be spending more of my time in 2022 um, expanding upon vegan supply and the work that we're doing there. Mm. Um, and we are just uh, working on a, our new project right now. The, the website is launched. It's friend and foe. And friendandfoe.com is um, a piece that deals with the issue of vegan versus plant-based. And it is going to be exploring that byproducts piece and creating those solutions so people can find mm. purses and bags and really supporting those um, small businesses that are trying to innovate with uh, plant-based materials, creating solutions. And we're going to get Amazing. those out to people and make the, uh, create possibility there. We have a store in the, Ch in the Chinatown area of Vancouver at 250 East Pender for friend and foe. It's opened up right now. Um, and we're, you know, really just exploring what it means, uh, what people want, what, what, uh, how we can support entrepreneurs uh, that are creating these solutions, but also like really we're bringing those people together, the That's makers and the, and the consumers to, to try and um, uh, basically create a new economy uh, in that area. So those are the three things that we're mainly working on right now. And in the background, uh, well, there'll be more news to come on the media side of where we're going to do as far as the messaging. So that is all amazing. Three incredible areas that, you know, touch all different parts of our lives. So like when you want to go out and socialize and, you know, grab food to go, um, you can do that when you want to shop, you know, for products that are not necessarily the products that you're going to be putting in your mouth. You've got friend and foe. And then of course, for getting all of your vegan supplies, I love it through vegan supply company, to vegan supply. Um, Jason, thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's uh, it was amazing, and uh, yeah, it, there's lots more conversation to be had, and so I'm I, yeah, I'm super excited about the collaboration potential and uh, where we can take this. I think we're going to be able to do some special stuff. So yeah, and that word collaboration is key to all of this. This is what we all need to be doing to be able to make this world a better place. So thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was amazing. And here we are, folks. Was that not a powerful podcast? If you want to get to know Jason more, check out all of his social links and his websites below. If you're in the Vancouver area, go check out any of his restaurants, um, Meet on Main and Meet in Yaletown, Meet in Gastown. Check out the Vegan Supply Company. And of course, don't forget to head over to Shop Friend and Foe for a beautiful selection of vegan products. And I thank you all for being here. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends and your family, because it's so important that people understand that food is medicine and that no, you do not have to be living with your diagnosed chronic lifestyle condition. You can get reprieve simply by using food as medicine and learning how to cook for yourself how to source food, how to go into the restaurants and demand healthy food for yourself so that at the end of the day, every bite of food that's going into your body is there to heal you, to make you thrive, to feel abundant, to have tons of energy, to literally be vibrating on a cellular level. 
and so that you stimulate all the self-healing principles in your body that are innately there for you to capture and activate on every given day. Thanks everyone for being here. And I look forward to seeing you on our next show, our hundredth episode of the Eat Real to Heal podcast, which will be with Chuck Carroll from the Exam Room podcast through the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. Can't wait to celebrate. Thank you everyone for being with us. See you next week. Bye-bye.